This episode of the DBR podcast is brought to you by loyal fan Hazim El Haddad, who wants to send a shout out and an RIP to the Crow's Nest at Cameron Indoor Stadium. Pouring out for the Crow's Nest. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast, which has actually recently become more like the Duke Football Report podcast, but don't worry, we'll we'll be back to basketball soon enough. It's Sunday, September 24th, 2017. Duke Football's 4-0. They have uh, retained possession of the victory bell for another year, so we're going to get into that. We're going to get into the Miami preview and we'll do a little basketball topic at the end just to make sure that we're vaguely staying on the on the topic that we at least promise to be bringing you every week uh, on the show. So uh, without further ado, I am your host this week, Sam Klein. I am coming to you, as always, from Denver. And my two co-hosts this week, as usual, are Donald Wine in Washington, D.C. Hey, what's going on, Sam? Hey, I am pretty good. And then uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, Jason Evans. Uh, it is great to be here. It is always a good weekend when the uh, Blue Devils defeat the Tar Heels. It's always a great weekend. And I might add, because it's Sunday night and we're recording and the NFL games are largely done, that my Falcons defeated Donald's Lo- Detroit Lions. In- okay, you know what? You know <laughs> what? Oh, my God. That was the worst. I can't believe that play happened. I, can't I wasn't going to say nothing. <laughs> I wasn't going to say nothing. But you had to bring it up. That Okay, everybody – this is censor time, okay? That was bullshit. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Sam, have you seen the play that the Falcons won the game on? No, I, uh, I spent my Sunday happily not watching football and, and hanging out with friends and playing music and just generally being away from it. So uh, do you want to tell me about it really quick before we get to UNC? So uh, Detroit has the ball at the one with eight seconds or 10, 12 seconds left, something like that. They run a pass to Golden Tate, um, and it sure looks like he scored. In fact, I was, I was watching on my phone, um, and I turned it off. I was like, oh, that's ball game. He scored. Uh, Detroit was down four at the time. I'm like, there's eight seconds left. Detroit wins the game. It's, it's all done. And I come back and check my phone about 45 minutes later or so, and it says that the Falcons have won. And I'm like, how did that happen? And it turns out that Golden Tate, even though it looked – to everyone on the planet, like he scored, the geniuses in the NFL's replay booth decided that he was down at the one-inch line, and Detroit didn't have any timeouts left, so time runs off, and Detroit loses. It no, was no, 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 wait, wait, crushing, wait. Crushing. So, so it was, the reason why we ended up losing the game is they scored, it was 11 seconds on the clock when Golden State, quote-unquote, knee hit the ground, but he rolls into the end zone. It then rolls down to eight seconds before they signal touchdown. So the clock stops eight seconds. It's an automatic scoring review. And they rule that he, like Jason said, was down at the one-inch line. But they said because it was an automatic scoring review and because the clock was running and because Detroit didn't have any timeouts, it's an automatic 10-second runoff and the ball game is over. It would have been fourth down and goal from the one, uh, from the one-inch line with eight seconds to go, and they would have been able to run a play from there. But because of the 10-second runoff, the game's over. Having said that, if they had stopped the clock when the knee was ruled to be down, there would have been 11 seconds on the clock, and the 10-second runoff would have meant one second left for one play. But they chose to go with the eight-second clock, run it off, game over. Again, that was bullshit. Wait, can, can, can I ask, because obviously I can't, feel the pain that you're feeling. I can't believe there weren't riots in Detroit after this. If this happened to Duke, like if Duke had lost to North Carolina like this, or if we lost, to me, that must have hurt. So Donald, I'm going to ask, did that hurt worse than the Miami game where the the Duke Miami football game where Miami, the guy was down and Miami returned? I thought thought we weren't going to get to this until like whenever we finish UNC, but sure. (laughs) <laughs> but it did hurt because – but here's the thing. This happens to Detroit for the Lions every single time. 
how many rules has the NFL had that has been influenced or brought to light because of something that happened in the Lions game? We have the complete the process rule. We have the game in Dallas where there was a pass interference. and They said, no, we're going to pick up the pass interference because we forgot to call it right. So they could pick that up. They had the, the bat rule in the Seattle game. They had the pass interference in the Seattle game in the playoffs that was ruled not pass interference because the ball was uncatchable because the ball was two yards over his head. There's so many instances of the Lions having this happen that when it happened, it's not even it's not even a shock anymore. They're going to come out tomorrow probably. They're going to say, oh, we messed up our bad Detroit. And we're going to say stuff it because every single year we have at least one game where something like this happens, where a new rule comes into effect or a new rule comes off the books uh, from the from the nether regions of the NFL office, and we end up losing as a result. So, no, it did not hurt as much because it happens all the time, but it still sucks. Hey, should we get to the Carolina game? Yeah, sure. sure. Let's, That's, uh... great. That's much happier times. Let's absolutely do that. So, as we mentioned at the top of the show, and as I would hope uh, any of our – listeners uh, know at this point Duke beat North Carolina this weekend in football 27 to 17 at Keenan Stadium hey, in Chapel hey, Sam, Hill Sam, more yeah. excitement Duke beat Carolina guys <laughs> this weekend Duke the Duke Blue Devils your Duke Blue Devils beat the dreaded North Carolina Tar Heels in Keenan Stadium in Chapel Hill 27 17 Duke uh, retains possession of the victory bell once again. There were some incredible post-game videos of David Cutcliffe uh, embracing fans, embracing some of the walk-ons, dancing around, ringing the bell. Um, sort of all the all the excitement that you can get out of out of Duke winning this game. They've now won four of the last six against UNC, and as I mentioned, the Blue Devils are four and zero heading into a game with Miami this week. So uh, let's dive into the UNC game first. I will admit. Off the top, I got to watch the first half of this game uh, in relative comfort. And then the second half, I actually had to uh, go to a friend's wedding. Um, so I was uh, being the jerk in the corner at the at the cocktail hour with my with my ESPN app in my hand uh, and trying to sneak glances at it. So I actually saw um, Brian Fields' big interception, but I missed big chunks of the second half. So uh, I'm going to need you guys to fill me in. I'm going to need you to fill our listeners in. So let me start with Donald. Um, tell me about your impressions from the UNC game, uh, what you saw Duke and, and just kind of, kind of talk about everything and, and take it kind of in any direction you want to go. Sure. So uh, I'll admit I was on a bus from uh, New York to DC while the game was going on and my bus broke down, which lost the Wi-Fi. So I was able to watch most of the game, but there was a large, uh, I'd say maybe a, a 10 minute chunk of the first uh, half where I didn't see, I didn't see the end of the first half essentially, but I saw the rest of the game. Um, first off, I think. Hold up, hold up. You missed. Wait, you missed the end of the first half. So you, I, so you missed like the biggest turnaround in the okay, game right. potentially. No, no, no. But I saw, I, I saw it later on. I didn't see it. I, 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 I need to be the lead on this. I, I need. <laughs> I, it, I, I watched the whole game, every single second of it. We had technical um, difficulties, man. So, so unlike the two of you, I get to take the lead. <laughs> All right. Why don't, um, Jason, why don't you tell us about the whole game? So uh, Donald talked about a moment ago, and, and folks were about to bring it full circle, that the whole Detroit-Atlanta thing that we went through, and Donald talking about the plight of the Detroit Lion fan who, who just knows that the worst is going to come. And, and I want to connect this back to, I think it was two weeks ago on the podcast, we talked a little bit about when, when does Duke's years and years of ineptitude in football wear off? And when do we stop referencing that? And when do we stop feeling the impact of that? And I was sitting here saying, oh, it's pretty soon and I'll, you know, all this other kind of stuff. I was wrong because I'm going to tell you something. I felt the way the Detroit fans feel during the first half of this game with Carolina and, and a couple times in the second half where I can't get past by feeling that Duke is going to blow it in football. Um, I wish I could. And it's not a David, the David Cutcliffe Duke teams don't blow it, but I just, so there's two minutes left in the first half. Duke has the ball first and 10 at the 13 at the Carolina 13 and we're leading by seven. And I want you to know up to that point, I felt like, God, we should really be winning by more than this. Like Duke, to me, Duke had blown a few chances. Carolina had done nothing on offense. Our defense was completely dominating them. We led by seven, but I was sort of like, 
God, we should probably already be leading by 10 or more. But I thought, you know what? This is okay. We got first and 10 from the 13. We're going to bang it in here. And we're going to take a nice lead into halftime. And as we know, the next two minutes, and and I, I absolutely feel comfortable saying this, the next two minutes of that football game were the worst two minutes the Duke has played under David Cutcliffe. We, we, we can't get any yardage. We, you know, we do nothing. We miss a chip shot, easy field goal. Carolina gets the ball back down seven. And the defense that was brilliant all day long, just like allows two guys to catch balls that they, you know, the defense should have been playing differently. There was almost no time left in the clock at that point. It, you know, there's sort of like the only way Carolina can score is if Duke defense doesn't even play prevent defense right. And we couldn't even do that right. So Carolina scores and the game is tied at halftime. And raise your hand. And my hand is way in the air. Raise your hand if you thought Duke was going to lose. I was I, sure we were going to lose. So I, like I said, I watched, I watched the whole first half very intently. And, and I thought that, that that last whatever minute of the, of the first half was, was absolutely brutal. And, and I, was, I, I'm, I am the eternal Duke football optimist, Jason, and I'm totally with you. I've got my hand equally raised in the air because it, it seemed like we, we sort of blew the opportunity to run away from them. And, you know, the, the game didn't end up being quite the shootout that I predicted it would be on the preview last week. But um, it's not like UNC's offense isn't able to move the ball normally. Um, you know, Chaz Surratt had a pretty good day, uh, all things considered, especially oh, man, since come he's on. a freshman. Wait, 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 wait. So the announcers, thought, the announcers thought that Chaz Surratt was the second coming. The announcers could not stop talking about how great Chaz Surratt was. I think they thought he was Jameis Winston or Cam Newton rolled, it, rolled into one. I thought Chaz Surratt was was somewhere between mediocre and bad. Um, so he had the one long run. He had a 56-yard run, and they kept on talking about how great he was with his legs and all this other stuff. Uh, take out that one run, his other 16 carries. Now, I'm not counting sacks here, but his other 16 times he carried the ball, he got a total of 21 yards. That's nothing. And he, he was 17 of 32 in the air, and most importantly, that was one of the worst interceptions. <laughs> I mean, that was, that, that I pass was awful. That was that a pass. rugby pass. He threw a two-hand. It, it was like a. It was a soccer throw-in. You yes, know, two hands exactly the ball over your head. That was the worst pass I've ever seen a quarterback. I don't know who we thought to, was to give, supposed to catch that. To give the context, that was you. We're talking about the pass in the fourth quarter where uh, UNC's driving. And uh, it, it's well, kind they're of, kind of see, desperate. They, they weren't really driving. Yeah. They were, it was a third and 10 and they knew they were in some trouble and but they, they hadn't moved but, the ball the whole half. Right. And, 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 and they needed to make a play happen. Duke, uh, Duke collapsed the pocket pocket pretty quickly. And Surratt made this, made this two handed throw. Um, like Jason said, it kind of looked like a soccer player inbounding the ball. Um, and right. It, the ball went right into the hands of Brian Fields, Duke's defensive back, their uh, senior defensive back who, uh, ran it back for a touchdown with with the help of of some key blocks, um, but that kind of felt like the the last gasp for UNC. It, it was what about five minutes left in the fourth quarter, right? Mike, it was so, less than that. It was, I think it's probably like three or something like three that. And a half, it was, yeah, it was, three yeah, and it was near the end. My, Michael, so guys, Michael Carter the second. That's the name. He, he's I believe he's a true freshman. Michael Carter the second is a safety for Duke. He laid such a great block to get fields into the end zone. He took out yeah. two guys. He took he for that last, he was that last blocker right down oh, by the sideline. That was such a great block. He took out two guys at the same time. And he's a freaking, he's a, he's a freshman safety. That was as good a block as you'll see any guy make downfield. And he and by looked the way, back and saw the guy coming and was like, oh, I can get both these guys. You can see in his eyes where he's like, it's awesome. It's these awesome. Guys, dude, I can get both these guys if I just take this one dude out. And it was perfect. Hey, by the way, one so, other thing to note about Fields, and, and I'll turn it over to, to Donald. Um, so yeah, Fields, that's his fourth uh, interception return for a touchdown in his career, which is tied for the all-time ACC lead and uh, I believe tied for 10th nationally in, in all of college football, in the history of college football. Four interception returns for a touchdown, and he's got eight more games left in his career. I hope he gets a four more. At least eight more games left in his career, Jason. Let's be ooh, optimistic. Ooh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I, I would add, just before I give it over to Donald, Jason, you mentioned the the, the sort of psyche of of the Duke football fan. Um, 
it's certainly been that has been the case for many many years this year being a unc football fan pretty brutal they are now one and three their one win is against old dominion their other two losses are against uh california and louisville in all of their games against major conference opponents so us louisville and and california unc has entered the fourth quarter with the lead and has given all of them up so um, it is uh, it is not not good times to be a fan of the baby. Not that there's ever a good time, but it's especially bad times to be a fan of the baby blue in football. Um, Donald, karma. did you want to? Karma. This is karma. You know, it's so rough, isn't it? Donald, do you uh, do you want to add on to uh, to some of the stuff that Jason talked about? Was there anything else you wanted to highlight from this game? Yeah. So I thought that the you know there was a lot of frustrating moments, and again, there were times where you would say, oh this team is just defeating themselves. Um, and it was really frustrating to kind of watch those moments. But I do want to point out that the defense, the run defense, I thought was terrific. If you take out Surratt's 56-yard touchdown run, Duke only allowed 62 yards on 32 carries, which is and they had 11 tackles for loss and four sacks. That's really, really good. That's that's what you want from your defense. I mean, that for to really control the line of scrimmage, that is what, if you guys remember the play, uh, where Fields had the pick six, it started because they penetrated so quickly on Surratt. The Surratt panicked and had to do something, and his something was a, a soccer throw in um, to see to try and get the ten yards that they needed to keep the drive going. So it, it, that sort of penetration was really, really, really key uh, for a lot of the defense on the day. Jeremy McDuffie, Alonzo Saxton, Joe Giles Harris, their names were called a lot. I mean, they were everywhere. Twenty-seven tackles between the three of them. Uh, including a few for loss. And that is what you want to see from, uh, you know, veteran players that were just everywhere. Like you want to see guys all over the ball, really rushing, pressuring the quarterback, making, trying to make, uh, make them uh, do bad decisions. And that was really what turned the game around. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Ben Swain on Twitter after the game had a, a tweet that said, and here's the tweet, fourth quarter possessions in, one possession games for Duke. Okay. So that's Baylor and against UNC Duke's opponents, 32 yards and zero touchdowns in those possessions. Duke's defense, 83 yards and two touchdowns in those possessions. So that is, that's awesome. I mean, that is when your defense is saying you want your defense to come up with a big play and big plays they're coming up with final thoughts. I'll say before I kick it back top, a couple shout outs. One, Coach Cutcliffe, it was his 100th victory as a head coach, uh, and that is awesome. Um, congratulations to Coach on the 100th victory. This is uh, obviously taken into account Old Miss and Duke as well. Um, but 100 victories, that's, I mean, that puts him in, in, a, in a class with a lot of great, great uh, head coaches over the years. Uh, and I think that is, you know, really indicative of the program that he's built here at Duke, that he has reached that mark while a Blue Devil. So uh, congratulations to him. And shout out to the fans that made the trip to Chapel Hill because throughout the entire broadcast, they were, you can hear them. It wasn't where, you know, when they had a big play, you'd hear the Let's Go Duke. It was loud and they were doing everything they could to make it a home game. And it sounded like, at, at a lot of times, it sounded like a home game. That's how loud they were. That's what you want to see. Now we got to get these people out to Wallace Wade because we have a really big opponent in Miami come this week. Friday night lights, national TV. It's time to make Wallace Wade rock just as much as they did Keenan. Yeah, and and I, I think it's it's funny that that Duke can have a a big presence in an away game, but in some ways it, it's kind of like the perfect away game for that, right? UNC yeah. doesn't have particularly big stadium um their fan base is not exactly the most passionate and and i say that knowing that that we're duke football fans um so it, it's it's not that hard for you know the five thousand or so hardcore duke football fans to all just drive you know down the street from from durham to go to the game in chapel hill um so yeah it, great on them to to represent like that uh, Jason, did you have anything else you wanted to add about this UNC game uh, before we turn it over to Donald for the Miami preview? Yes, yes. So a couple really quick things. Um, folks, I'm going to pat myself on the back for a moment here. Uh, I told you two weeks ago, who did I tell you to look out for? Britton Brown. Brown. Britton Brown. Britton Brown had a really, really great game this game. Um, and, and this kid is... 
you know, he's getting more and more and more involved in the offense. I mean, look, we, we all love what Sean Wilson brings to the table. And Sean Wilson has been a fabulous contributor for Duke. Uh, at the running back position for many years, but Duke has a two-headed running back monster at this point um, between Sean Wilson and Britton Brown, and and the future of running back at Duke uh, with Britton Brown going forward is is incredibly bright. Uh, the other thing that I highlighted last week was I talked a bit uh, about Duke's defense on third down um, and how great we'd been this year. Uh, the the most third down conversions we'd given up in any of our games this year was we gave up two to. Uh, Oh God, I can't remember who who we, uh, NC Central. I couldn't remember who we played in the very first game. Uh, so we gave up three to Carolina. They were three for sixteen. That's still terrible. That's a horrible number. You can't win football games when you are three for sixteen on third down, which is what North Carolina was. The Duke defense continues to be unbelievable. One of the best in the country at at getting off the field when you know when they get the other team to third down. And and to be honest, this season. And we don't usually say this. The story of the season has been the defense. Don't you guys agree? I mean, the Duke defense has been incredible this year. Yeah, um, I, I think that we want, you know, it, it, it's easy as fans to, to focus on the offense. And especially when you have a guy who is as capable as Daniel Jones is of, of running the team on offense. You know, he's, he's a good runner. He's a good passer. Um, Duke has a really experienced running back in Wilson. And as you note, you know, one of their most impressive players so far has been Britton Brown. But, but if I had to pick a, an MVP for this Duke team so far, I mean, those guys might all come behind Mike Ramsey and, and Ben Humphreys and Joe Giles Harris. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, speaking of Ben Humphreys, um, what Carolina did to him at the very end of that game was, was horrible. They they did a chop block. um, And look, I don't know whether it was intentional or not, I don't know whether they, you know, were trying to hurt him, but they did hurt him. And uh, the lucky thing is, I'm I'm hearing from some sources that he's he's okay. He's probably going to be fine. But um, uh, yeah, Humphreys is one of the most important guys on that defense. You didn't mention Alonzo Saxton. Saxton's another guy who, yeah, look, certainly. the defense has just been so 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 good this year. Um, it, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And yeah. and hey, I've got a good way. Sorry, I was going to say I got a good way to lead us into talking about Miami. Uh, it, it, can I do this? Sure, go for it. So uh, I was going to say um, it's worth noting. Speaking of opponents, uh, you know, everyone sort of poo-pooed Duke's victory over Baylor a week ago. You know, the, ah, Baylor, Baylor's not any good this year. They're, they're, you know, they're nothing. Uh, did you guys see what Baylor did this past weekend? No, I didn't. Why don't you tell us? So Baylor, the team that Duke handled. You know, it was a close game, competitive game, but Duke handled with, you know, it wasn't wasn't a horrible, terrible, um, uh, uh, tough test for us. Duke, Duke handled. Baylor, you, you you could say that you could say that Duke handled Baylor in the way that teams handled Duke for a long time, which is just let him hang around for a while, and then in the fourth quarter be more more prepared and more athletic, and 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 sort of run away from them in that last in that home stretch. Yep. So that Baylor team um, went to Oklahoma. Number three, Oklahoma, a team that is very much in the national title hunt. People think Oklahoma is, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who think Oklahoma could be the national title favorite right now. And Baylor only lost that game by a touchdown. And Baylor was leading late in the third quarter um, in that game against Oklahoma. And Baylor put up 40-something points on Oklahoma. And Oklahoma supposedly got a fairly decent defense. Baylor put up a 40 spot. The Duke defense, they held Baylor pretty much in check. So I think that's that's impressive. Yeah, no, I, I and and uh, and meanwhile, UNC like beating UNC is looking less and less impressive every week as uh, as as teams get their shots at them. That being said, looking ahead, Duke has an opponent this week that uh, was in the preseason poll is currently ranked um, and has kind of had a weird. Uh, weird layoff, um, but I, I want to turn it over to Donald because he's the most familiar with this Miami program being, I guess this, this being his secondary uh, team, would that be an appropriate uh, characterization? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Donald, hey, hey, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Donald, uh, so there were some things I noticed about Miami. Donald, can I just check? Because uh, if you don't get to these things, I'll get to, are you going to talk about the fact that their schedule has been all screwed up because of the hurricanes? I, I absolutely will. Are you going to talk about this past week? Uh, Mark Walton, their running back, had a huge, huge day. Are you going to talk about that? 
Yep. And are you going to talk about the fact that they're averaging like 290 yards per game on the ground? They have more yards rushing than passing, which is really unusual. Are you going to talk about that? I most certainly will. All right, so I got nothing. Donald, it's all on you. It's hard to steal all your thunder. Um, but Donald, yeah, is there, any, is there any more than that? Oh, there's a lot more. Let's let's get into Miami. Um, so Miami, two and zero on the year. Um, you're thinking two and zero. What the hell? How are they two and zero when most teams are four and zero or five and zero? It's because of obviously because of Hurricane Irma. They had to take two straight weeks off. The errors, the Arkansas State game was canceled, and the game that was supposed to be uh, this past weekend uh, against I'm sorry, two weekends ago against Florida State was moved to October seventh. So it really and they with a lot of the scheduling uh, moving around. Uh, it's really caused a lot of issues with regards to uh, rescheduling of games. Um, the Arkansas State game will not be made up, so Miami will go with 11 games during the regular season. Uh, the FSU game was moved to October 7th, which was their bye week. And then the Georgia Tech game, which was going to be on October 12th, the Thursday night game, was moved to October 14th to give the teams, uh, to give Miami a couple extra days of rest. Uh, so a lot of things have changed about this program. And they really, it really took a toll uh, for most of the game against Toledo. Before they ran away with it, they were looking very rusty, and you could tell that they had taken two weeks off. So that is something that was, you know, obviously of concern to Miami fans. Uh, but of course, they they rallied in, in the third and fourth quarter, really took it to uh, Toledo. Let's get into the offense. Malik Rozier, Jr. He took over the starting quarterback duties after Brad Kaya left last year. Uh, and has been doing pretty well. He can he completes about uh, 69% of his passes. He's thrown for 550 yards and six touchdowns so far this season. He he has scored a rushing touchdown on a, on a long run, but he won't look to really run the ball on the scramble. He can get out of, uh, out, out of the pocket a little bit, but he's not looking to run in the form of, say, a Daniel Jones, who's going who's gonna to have some draws and have some uh, sweeps that'll uh, bootleg sweeps that'll you know go for actual yardage. Uh, he's not necessarily a game manager, but his role is to feed the ball to his playmakers and let them do work. One of those playmakers, Jason pointed them out, Mark Walton. He is the playmaker on offense. He sparks the running game. Uh, he had 204 yards against Toledo, um, and one of those was an 82-yard run that somehow was not a touchdown. Um, he's had 352 yards and three touchdowns this year on only 27 carries. So he has the ability to break one for a long game. He has the ability to really spark an offense by doing something very, very great on offense. Travis Homer is their other running back, and he can get downfield in a hurry as well. He has 140 yards and two touchdowns in the season, but he also has the ability to catch out of the backfield. So he has five catches for 71 yards so far this year. So the, the running backs, not only do they outrun, uh, they, they've generated more offense running than they have passing, they're the playmakers that instigate everything on their offense. Even some of the, the passing attack will be going through the running backs. So we have to key in on Mark Walton, Travis Homer, especially. Miami tries to stretch the ball uh, on slants and deep patterns to get the ball to their very fast receivers. I mean, and some of their receivers are very, very fast. The receiving core is led by Braxton Berrios. Um, he's the main guy that they're going to try and look for first. Christopher Herndon the fourth is also a dangerous receiver. Um, he's caught nine balls this year. Other guys who have done some damage, Daryl Langham, Lawrence Cager, Mike Harley, Dial Harris, and a name that should be familiar to everyone. He's not going to feature much in this offense, but he is a name that you need to look out for. Michael Irvin II. Obviously, we know who his father was. On offense, they sometimes struggle to move the ball and make, and sometimes they make some questionable decisions with the ball, but the one thing that they really love to do, they want to put their guys in open field where they have the ability to use their speed to get downfield in a hurry. So we need to really watch that. On defense, they do give up some yards. They've averaged 21.5 points per game. Hey, but hey Donald, Donald, yeah. before, you get to, before you get to the defense, I have a question for you. Kind of, sure. So, so really good. Um, I, I, I like you kind of going through each of the positional groups like that. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like... You know, they, they have the talented receivers, but that a lot of the offense comes through the running backs. So yeah. is so would you say that the um, the key for Duke's defense this week is kind of up front um, creating pressure on those guys? Um, are, is, is Duke going to be more looking to to stop the rushing game or are they going to be kind of letting them get those yards and, and falling back and, and being in in the past defense a little more? 
That's a good question. I think I don't think they should sit back and let you know Walton and Homer get their yards because that is what's setting up this aerial attack that they have. The the downfieldness uh, of their offense is really cultivated from the running game. That's where they get their swagger. That you know the swagger that they're known for right now is in their running game. So to really hone in on that, to the defensive line is going to have to be extra special on Friday night. This is their test. Um, this is the one game where if they do well and they limit the number of yards that Mark Walton and Travis Homer have, we have a really good chance of limiting their offense and getting them off the field um, where they can't do any damage. So well, I think that – go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that that um, a minute ago when when I was talking about how, you know, the the, the team MVPs might all be the those top guys on defense, this is going to be a big opportunity for them to – show on like a, on a bigger stage uh, in front of hopefully a larger um, national audience that, that that that's the case for, for guys like Giles Harris and Humphreys and Ramsey. Absolutely. Uh, so on defense, very quickly on defense, um, you know, I mentioned that they averaged 46.5 points on offense, but on defense, they're allowing about 22 points a game. They do give us some yards, particularly in the air uh, against Bethune Cookman. They allowed 229 yards passing and against Toledo, they gave up 342 yards passing. So that is a lot of – I mean, that's, that's the potential for a lot of yards. Where they have been a little bit better is on their run defense where they've allowed about 101 yards a game. So uh, the one thing I will note about their defense is they haven't forced many turnovers. They only have two fumble recoveries and one interception on the season. But remember, we've only, we're only talking about two games for them. So it's a smaller sample size than everyone else in the country. Where they will hurt you is that they are very fast to the ball and their pressure can lead to sacks and tackles for loss. So when we're establishing a running game, you know, these guys are going to need to get through the line, get off the ball quick. Our line has to get off the ball quick because if they surround the, the pressure that they're going to probably throw at Daniel Jones, throw at Britton Brown and Sean Wilson, um, that is going to help. You know, that's where they're going to feed a lot of their, their energy on defense. So we need to watch out for that. What does Duke need to do against Miami to win? Three things. One. They have to have a good day offensively. Obviously, that is a given. Sean Wilson and Britton Brown are going to be very important because if we can establish the run, and, and not even I, I won't even put Daniel Jones in that category because his versatility is going to be uh, key to this, but really, Wilson and Brown, if they can establish the run, it's going to create passing lanes for our receivers and also for Daniel Jones to run as well. Number two, they can't give up any big plays on defense. The secondary now, the defensive line is going to be very important. They need to penetrate so that they can stop the run and get to the quarterback and make Rozier make some bad decisions. But the secondary needs to make sure that the Miami receivers don't get any room in the open field. There were times against Miami, against um, North Carolina where we kind of played a little bit of a prevent on the, in the cover two uh, on, in the secondary, allowing them the opportunity to make the catch before we made a play. This can't happen with Miami because that open space, they're so fast that those holes will be much bigger um, than would it be against any other team. Third, energy. You talked about it a little bit. This is Friday Night Lights now. We're 4-0. We're just barely out of the top 25, and a lot of people think we should be in the top 25. This is the exact game you want to make a statement to show the country that Duke Gang should be talked about when discussing the best 25 teams. This is the team you want to play. Miami's ranked in 13-14, you know, depending on which poll you're looking at. If we come out with the fire and energy that they need to win this game, the game against a team that almost everybody, uh, all the journalists picked to win the Coastal Division, that will let everyone know, especially the ACC, that Duke commands respect and that this team is someone to watch. So those are my three keys, and I will kick it back to you guys with uh, anything else. Jason, did you, did you have something to add? Yeah, so uh, first of all, Donald – if if Duke beats Miami, Duke is the unquestioned leader in the coastal in the coastal division. I you know I uh, the having beaten North Carolina, who despite their record, you know a lot of people think Carolina is one of the better teams in the coastal and that they'll eventually turn it around. And and like Sam pointed out, I mean it's not like Carolina's been getting blown out of their games. They've been they've had the lead late in every game that they've lost. So Carolina is a quality team as much as I hate to say that. Um, if Duke manages to get wins against Carolina and Miami to start our ACC schedule, we are, we are big time favorites 
in the coastal division, which is which could be a really big deal. Um, and and you're going to start to see folks really talking about this Duke team for important bowl games and and being a player on the national stage. Uh, I think the good thing about that, Jason. The good thing about that is if we do beat Miami, we'll be two and zero in the ACC or in, at least in the coastal, and we will have really two games on Miami because if it's a head-to-head, they take the team that, you know, the head-to-head competition would yep. uh, factor into that. We would be four games up on on UNC because UNC has lost twice, including to uh, Louisville. So we would have a – basically we'd have a two-game gap, but really it's you – know, I'm sorry, it would be three games. It would be a three-game gap because they would have to overtake us. These teams would have to overtake us down the line. And that would bode well for us as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, regarding Miami, uh, you know, Donald mentioned their schedule has been, you know, absolutely played havoc with because of the hurricane that came through. I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, we've got this game with them on Friday. It's a short week for Miami. Uh, they're going to be traveling. Um, and when you think, uh, you know, when the hurricane, you know, with all the, del- the the games being canceled, I think my bet is a pretty fair number of practices were canceled or they weren't, you know, they, they certainly weren't able to practice outside at all. Um, th- their minds have been on other things because they've been living through, uh, you know, a really, really scary situation with the storm. Um, I wonder how much practice Miami has been getting. Uh, you know, Donald pointed out they didn't look good in the first half against Toledo. They're going to have a short week against Duke. Um, you know what, they, they'll get three, maybe four practices in. I, I, I'm not even sure they get four, you know, it depends on where they decide to practice on Sunday. Um, uh, so I think that's, uh, you know, that bodes well for Duke uh, having to face Miami a little later. And, and last thing I wanted to mention, you, you talked about Mark Walton, um, who, uh, the, the running back who, who had the huge day uh, against Toledo and, and he, he's their main threat um, running the ball. Mark Walton did something in that game that I understand and and I can't say, look, if I was his father, I wouldn't have been calling for it to happen and the such. And but at the same time, it's kind of something that I don't know, doesn't sit well with me. So Mark Walton had carried the ball nine times, I'm sorry, ten times in that game for 199 yards. Ten times for 199 yards, which is huge. He'd had a massive game, 199 yards on the ground in 10 attempts. And the game was essentially over. Miami had wrapped it up. And for the most part, they were putting in, you know, they were leading big. They were putting in scrubs. They, they or, you know, second teamers. They didn't want to, Walton was out of the game. He was not going to go back into the game. There was no reason for him to, to risk injury. And he went to coach Mark, Mark Richt, the head coach of Miami, and begged him, please, 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 let me get back in the game. I want to get to 200 total yards. And Mark Rick put him back in the game, and Walton got one more carry. He got five more yards in that carry, and so he got 204 yards total. Um, and, and look, I, I get that the kid wanted to do that. It's a big deal. It's wonderful and the such. But I sort of hate that the kid was so hung up on his own statistics that he was paying attention to his own statistics enough that he had to ask the coach about that. I, I sort of feel like the right thing, the the – the the team first as opposed to me first thing would have been for someone else to notice it maybe and and for mark walton to be like no 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 i don't i don't need to do that um i i I kind of i think it sort of says a little something about miami's culture um from a football standpoint that that mark walton was like yeah yeah put me back in coach i gotta get uh you know i gotta get a record i gotta get uh, you know i gotta get to 200 yards and sort of keeping in that theme one thing to watch out for in this game Miami gets penalized a lot. They're an undisciplined team. They take a lot of bad penalties, you know, untimely penalties. Uh, and this, again, is something that's been part of the Miami football culture for a long, long, going back to Howard Schellenberger's years, I think, Schnellenberger. Um, so, uh, so that's something to watch out for in the game. Duke, on the other hand, as a team, does not get penalized very much, plays very, very disciplined. And it'll be easy. It'll be interesting to see how those two things juxtapose each other. You mentioned the... Uh... Uh, the the erratic schedule uh, with regards to practices. I mean, keep in mind that the reason why, I mean, the the hurricane had gone through by the time uh, the game against Florida State was set to have happened. The reason why they moved it back was in no small part based based on the information, based on the fact that with both teams in Miami, especially a lot of these guys are from the, from the state of Florida. And obviously the entire state of Florida was affected by hurricane Irma. And it's not just about the fact that, you know, also for the first time ever uh, in the school's history, Miami 
evacuated its campus. Uh, they have two towers that normally is where they house people during hurricanes, but they even rated those to be uh, insufficient uh, shelters and evacuated the entire campus, which is the first time that's ever happened. So that means that players left to go be with their families. Players were excused to go, you know, to, you know, tend to their personal uh, effects and stuff like that. And they scattered uh, for a, the better part of a week because of this hurricane. And then obviously it took a few days for a lot of them to get back. So don't underestimate how that has affected the team. Obviously it showed a little bit in the first half against Toledo, but one thing, and you, and you mentioned kind of the culture of Miami, one thing about it is these guys are in a, a, an atmosphere that is about business. They think that the, the University of Miami is about getting to the NFL and, and pursuing their football dreams. They Right now, they have a game under their belt, and that's where they think that they're going to be the scariest is that they now have that back. You know, th the whole thing about going after 20 yards is about swagger. It's all part of that. And the one thing that I think will help Duke is the fact that they, again, have a short week of rest. They're going to be looking forward to Florida State, which is the week after. And a lot of people will, in, in Miami circles are saying, this is a trap game. This is the definition of a trap game. You just beat, you know, you just got back from playing football. You're playing this team called Duke, and then you're going to play Florida State, the big game. This is the game where Duke should come out firing early and get them on their heels because if that is the case, this team has the tendency to make mistakes in the end. So that's going to be really, really important for Duke. Come out early, come out fast, give the, get, give, give the fans something to get, energize the stadium uh, because if that's the case, Miami will be on their heels for the whole game, and that is a different game that they're used to playing. Okay, so uh, looking forward to that game. Um, we'll see if uh, we'll see if Duke can can turn it around really well on the uh, on that short week. Obviously, the you know all all that being said, the the travel situation I think favors the Blue Devils because they got to be basically playing a home game this weekend, even though it was in Chapel Hill, and turning around to play another home game against Miami. Um, schedule has been generally favorable to Duke so far this season with, with all the home games in, in September. Guys, we were going to do a uh, one final topic um, pertaining to basketball before we wrap up here. So um, sort of in the, in the spirit of, of maintaining the basketballness of this podcast, um, we were going to do a, just a, a quick, uh, uh, a, a quick, a uh, quick, trip down memory lane for each of us. Um, and, and so the topic today is um, tell me about the the best Duke game or, or sort of the best Duke game story that you have of uh, of attending a Duke game, um, preferably one that wasn't in Cameron Indoor Stadium. And, and I'll let Jason go first. So uh, I'm not, you know, folks who've, uh, who know me, and uh, I think I've probably mentioned this before on the podcast when we've, when we've reflected back on our Duke histories, my story of the best Duke game I ever attended is the greatest game ever played. That's all you need to know about it. Uh, and I, I'm sure everyone knows I'm talking about the 1992 Duke versus Kentucky um, grade eight game played in Philadelphia. Uh, but the cool thing about, and I was at that game. Um, uh, it's uh, of course the game where um, uh, Grant Hill throws the ball to Christian Leitner length of the floor and, uh, Christian calmly takes a dribble, turns around, and buries the shot that destroyed the, the state of Kentucky. Um, uh, so the great thing about that game is my wife, uh, her, we, we were very recently married at that point, and my, uh, her uncle is a food rep. He, he's someone who um, uh, works with companies that supply food to grocery stores, to supermarkets and such. And one of his clients was a company called Gatorade. Um, I'm sure all of you have heard of Gatorade. So uh, when when it re turned out that Duke was going to be in the grade eight game um, in Philadelphia, which is where he he was a food rep, he he called us up and he said, hey, do you want Gatorade's tickets to the game? I can get you the Gatorade tickets for the game. And I was like, yeah, sure. I bet Gatorade has pretty good tickets for the game. Oh, boy, did Gatorade have good tickets for the game. So when Grant Hill leans back to throw the ball length of the floor, he almost stepped on my feet. I was literally in the very front row, right underneath the basket. Now it was the Kentucky basket. First half is the Duke basket, but for the second half in overtime, it's a Kentucky basket. But I was right on the floor 
uh, it, the cheerleaders were next to me. They weren't even in front of me. And I'm, I'm completely serious. When Grant Hill rears back to throw the pass, he almost stepped on my feet. That's how close I was to the action. And so I was in the house, in the front row, and I had Grant Hill's view of the greatest play in college basketball history. So that's my favorite game that I've ever experienced. Donald, what you got? Okay, you know what? First of all, why you got to make us look bad, man? Seriously, this is this is terrible. That's messed up. Like, first you <laughs> talk about my lions, then you bring that, and I gotta follow that. Like, come on, man. I'm watching. I'm, I'm watching the, or I, I pulled up the clip of uh, of the shot, and um, Jason, I, I you can't you can't really see, you can't see me in it. You can't really I, see me in it. I was gonna say I'm I'm because I'm looking at it, and uh, I I see like a couple people sitting behind where Grant Hill is, um, and they look like black people, and I I've met you, Jason. Um, so <laughs> I'm telling you, I just, was there. I, the funny thing is, I, my wife was in the other seat, um, and she's not a basketball fan. She was like, "Why? Why are we here?" At, to this day, I regret not pre- taking one of my Duke friends, one of my you know roommates, one of my buddies from my hall. Um, they actually were at the game because a lot of us had, were living up in the Northeast at that time, and mm-hmm. and they were sitting in the rafters, and they still talk about how great it was seeing the rafters. I'm like, guys, guys, you could have been sitting next to me. <laughs> All right. Well, Donald, do you have a do you have anything close to that? I do have a good story. It's not it's, it's not being at the greatest game of all time, but uh, I was at my favorite game that I've seen in person. There's obviously a lot that you can you can pick, but the, I will go with February fourth, two thousand four, number one Duke at number seventeen UNC. Um, this is the game where Chris Duhon had the reverse layup in overtime with six seconds left to win the game, eighty three eighty one. The cool thing is uh, the story about how I got my tickets. Um, so this was my senior year of college. Um, I'm the headline monitor at the time and was basically uh, preparing to watch the game uh, in Meyer Court with my friends. And it was uh, someone who used to be a, a former line monitor who contacted me through GBR and got my email address and said, I have uh, something I need to ask you, but I need to do it via email or, or is that okay? I said, sure, let's let's take this offline. And he says, I work in the in the UNC ticket office and I have an extra ticket for the game. The so the game, this is the game started at eight. He emails me at 658 and he says, Can you be here in 30 minutes? Uh and I was like, uh yeah, I can be there in 30 minutes. So he said, Okay, meet me in front of the Dean Dome, 30 minutes, and I will walk in together and, and sit in these seats. So it takes me like two seconds to kind of jolt myself. I kind of walk through and just kind of say, hey, guys, I'm out. Long story short, I'll tell you later. I just got a ticket and I need to get to, to Chapel Hill right now. So I sprint to my car, barrel down 15501 to, to Chapel Hill, make it park and get to the stadium, meet this guy who it was a very he's a very nice guy. And he said, I have an extra ticket. Let's go in together. Now, where are these tickets uh, in the stadium? They are probably the best tickets in the stadium. They are in the Rams Club section, which is basically if the Iron Dukes had like the, the really, 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 really big donor section, like right behind the court, that was our seats. Basically, I was about 10 rows up in the end zone opposite where Chris Duhon uh, made the reverse layup. So I got to go into the Dean Dome and see that game, but I'm sitting there with people who are looking at me the whole time and saying, how did you get these seats? And I kept telling him, oh, well, my friend, you know, works for UNC and got me these seats. He knew I wanted to see this game. And we're talking, we're, we're bantering back and forth. There's nothing, you know, nothing very hostile at all. They're very, very nice people. And right before uh, Duhan's layup, the guy turns to me, we've been talking the whole game, and he goes, you are without a doubt one of the nicest uh, away fans I've ever met. Like, you, you guys are very, very cordial. You guys know where you are. You're not really outlandishly cheering for your team. You're, you're clapping, you're cheering for your team, but you're not disrespectful in any way. And I was like, you know, we try to be, you know, respectful fans. And as he said that, Duhan did the reverse layup. I was so going to say, is, is this the ahead. moment where, where you took your shirt off and started riding it around? like? I, I let out a primal yell that it, I, I'm not sure if it showed up, if it came out on TV, but it was so loud that people, the entire section turned around and was like, this guy's been here the whole time. And 
the other guy is rub it in, baby way to rub it in in the aisle i'm yelling i've never yelled louder and the game you know at that point the game is still going on remember um they try to attempt a three-pointer that falls you know way way wide right um and we all start celebrating there's maybe you know 30 people in my half of the of the dean dome that are duke fans that are going nuts and i'm in the aisle i'm high-fiving whoever will high-five me i i'm even high-fiving people who are giving me the bird i'm doing everything i took a picture um it's it's one of my favorite pictures of all time uh as a duke fan but yeah that game easily one of the favorites uh that i've ever seen in person and i've never been back to the dean dome and i don't think i ever will go back because how do you top that you can't no that that's a good one I, i'm, I'm gonna pretty good. pretty good i'm gonna come up i'm gonna come up short of both of you um and and i'm gonna i'm gonna keep this this story short because uh because you can go back and hear my entire, basically live reaction of this story if you uh, listen to episode 22 of Duke Basketball Report podcast, because uh, that was the day after we won the national championship that I attended in 2015 in Indianapolis. Um, Unlike both of your stories, I was sitting in just about the worst seats in the stadium for that game, um, which, you know, is what it is. Uh, Shout out to my friends who were at the Final Four game against Michigan State who acquired our tickets for the championship game. Um, but uh, so, so I'll leave you with um, now with, with apologies to all the wonderful games I went to at Cole Fieldhouse as a child and uh, later to what became, I guess is now the Comcast Center in College Park. Um, and, and for all the uh, homophobic slurs that I, that I had shouted at me by Maryland fans from the time I was, I don't know, 11. Um, with apologies to all of those games, the 2015 national championship, sort of the the second half of the Grayson Allen coming out party, um, was uh, I think that was the <laughs> the best game away from Cameron Indoor that I attended. So go back and check out episode 22. There's there's never a bad time to relive Duke's most recent national championship. Oh, amen, amen to that. Good call, Sam. And uh, and and um and and my apologies if you if you follow through on that and and do go back and listen to it. Um, I'm sorry that my my voice sounds so terrible. I had been screaming all night, uh, and, and I, if I if I remember correctly, I, I did that I did that episode on my phone um, from the Kansas City airport where I was laying over the next morning. Um, I have to say that's pretty. You know, don't sell yourself short. You got to see a national championship live, oh, so that's that's. That, I'd say we had three really good uh, uh, games whatever, to talk about. Whatever it took, you know. So let's uh, let, let's wrap up here. We are going to do some quick parting shots, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Um, so, Donald, why don't you go first? Okay. So, I, I just wanted to mention very quickly that uh, I will. You know, I I talked a lot about the Duke Miami game. Well, I am actually going to the game on Friday. Um, my parents and uh, my cousins will be down there, um, and decided, hey, they wanted to go to the game, so I decided, hey, I'll just come down and, and watch with you. But the parting shot that I wanted to, to do is. A quick shout out to the Duke softball team. Yes, Duke has a softball team, and their very first ever game will be Saturday on East Campus against NC State at 4 p.m. So that is going to be probably something if you are in the Durham area, go check that out because those are you know a good group of young women who are starting a new program at Duke. Duke softball, go get them on Saturday, and hopefully I'll be able to check you out. That's a great one. Um, absolutely. So uh, everybody go join Donald for the, for the football game on Friday and the softball game on Saturday. Sounds like a, uh, sounds like a pretty good weekend. Jason, did you uh, have a parting shot? Yeah. So just really quick, I wanted to uh, tip the cap and say congratulations to Mason Plumley, who will be earning more money than his brother next year. Um, uh, Mason, uh, just a couple days ago, signed a new three-year contract with the Denver Nuggets. Um, Sam, your Denver Nuggets, right in your backyard. A three-year, right. three years, $41 million. It means that over the next three years, Mason will make $41 million, while Miles will make $37.5 million. So Mason makes a little bit more than Miles over the next few years. Um, congrats to Mason. It, 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 it took a long time for, for this contract to come together. I mean, Mason, a, a lot of, most of the free agent deals we're done, you know, it seems like back in July, 
Um, and for him to have to wait till mid late September um, took patience on his part, um, you know, waiting for for everything to get get right and get get where it needed to be with the Nuggets. Um, and and I'm thrilled for him. Uh, it's a great contract on a team that is uh, a team that is definitely on the rise and and has a bright future. Um, and uh, you know, Mason probably gives them, if not the best, um, one of the top two or three backup centers in the NBA. He, he will be the backup center because uh, Joseph Nurchich, or I, how do you pronounce his? I can't pronounce his name. Yusuf. Whatever. Yusuf Nurchich. Yusuf. There you go. Yusuf uh, is their starting center and, and is a very, very good center. Um, but uh, along with Mason, that's um, that, that's probably as good a one-two punch um, as you'll find uh, on the front line and, and off the bench um, on on many or any uh, NBA team. They also have Paul Millsap, who um, who's a heck of a power forward. Mason will probably back up both power forward and center. But uh, again, congrats to Mason Plumlee. Um, uh, he will make $41 million over the next few years. Uh, that's not bad. Not bad at all. Hey, Mason Plumley. Um, anytime you want, now that you got all that money, now that you're living here and still, you know, for a few more years in the Mile High City, um, Duke Alumni Club would always love to have you at an event. And if you want to throw a party just for us, you know, like your local alums, um, we're down for it. So, um, you know, get in touch with any of us on the, on the local alumni board. Uh, we'd love to get you involved. Hey, and Mason, anytime you want to, come be on the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That sounds great, too. Uh, All those things. Um, I'd be happy to come down to the Pepsi Center and do an episode with you Uh, because that sounds lots of fun. And it's not that far from where I normally record. So, All right. And I am going to wrap this week with a shout out as my parting shot to the Crow's Nest in Cameron Indoor. If you have ever watched a Duke game on television, if you've ever seen a Duke game in person in Cameron Indoor, or just if you've ever been to Cameron Indoor, you know that the announcing team, uh, unlike in most stadiums where they sit right by the court uh, in Cameron, they they until this year sat really, uh, really high up basically in the rafters of the stadium. They had some of the worst seats in the house uh, in what what we called the Crow's Nest. Um, for safety reasons, it sounds like Duke has decided to get rid of that and uh, at least temporarily replace it with with a press box kind of at the top of the section where the crow's nest used to be. Um, and we'll see what the plan is going forward. So uh, for those of you who have memorized the uh, seating capacity at Cameron Indoor 9,314, you're going to have to relearn that temporarily for this year and then perhaps again for next year when, when they announce the new seating capacity with with the with the new press box in place, um, but uh, it, it was a pretty interesting feature of the stadium. Uh, I, I think a thing that once you were aware that it was there, it was kind of like it was it was something that always sort of stood out, at least to me. Um, I, I don't know. Did did either of you guys have have anything to add about about the the end of the tenure of the Crow's Nest? I, I will merely say, um, you know, I think like most Duke fans, at some point in my life, I've been up in the Crow's Nest. I saw a little bit, a little fraction of a game from up there at one point. Um, I was helping out with Cable 13. We were doing some filming and stuff. Um, and there was a game going on, and I was able to go up there. It, it was actually a really, really cool seat. It was a great view. You, you, you really felt like you were uh, like overlooking the court in a way that you don't get in many other stadiums. It's because you know the, the, the Duke is very steep. The slope is very steep. Um, uh, from from the seats, uh, you know, going up from the court, and and I thought the Crow's Nest was a, a cool, fun place to watch games. And um, uh, there are a couple times where I was able to talk to people who were announcers, who who whose job it was to call games from up there, and and they didn't mind it. I mean, it was it wasn't easy to get to, and it probably felt a little bit unsafe. But but they said they also appreciated the angle that they had on the court, and and they thought it was cool and it was unusual. It was part of the character of Cameron, and I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm very sad to see it go. Yeah, it's definitely unique in the sense that one, it's you would always see uh, if they always showed the announcers during games, they were always profusely sweating because it's like nine thousand degrees at the top of Cameron Indoor Stadium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but also, when you're in the stands and you're looking up, you know, it's always funny to see uh, when there was former basketball players uh, that were calling games that were standing up there. Because, for example, I'll never forget watching. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar be the color analyst for one of our games and him dangling what appeared to be about three or four feet worth of leg uh, 
out of the crow's nest because he just could not fit into it uh, without stretching his legs out, you know, underneath the uh, desk and out basically over the crowd. So it really was kind of funny to kind of see those kind of things when it happened. Um, but it was, it's a very unique sight in college basketball. And I think all the announcers really appreciated it. So hopefully it comes back uh, in, in some fashion uh, when they remodel it um, bigger and better. All right. So that that's a wrap for this week, episode 84 of the Duke basketball report podcast. Again, we'll be, we'll be back uh, sometime soon after the Miami game to keep talking about football, hopefully. And, uh, and basketball season is right around the corner. So uh, if you're, if you're not into football, if it's not your thing, um, don't worry, the basketball season will be here before you know it. So for Jason Evans, for Donald Wine, I'm Sam Klein. This was episode 84 of the DBR podcast. Band, take us home.